Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back with you all, even on short notice. Hectic little week here. It's not expected to be preaching this morning, but happy to be doing so. The times that we are living in these days, they're strange. And I think that is a great, great understatement. Strange, strange times. I feel like every single day, and that's no exaggeration, a friend or a family member, some of you here from the church, will send me an email or a text message with some news article attached, some piece or tidbit of information of what's going on in the world, to which you can only respond, you can't make this stuff up. Just can't make it up. We live in a deeply polarized age, an age where the art of constructive and instructive discourse, they seem to have been mostly lost. We seem to live in a world that's absolutely devoid of logic, which makes rational discourse next to impossible. We live in an age of emotion, but not an age of reason. And in this age, we'd be served well to remember some of the basic principles of logic. And the wonderful words of G.K. Chesterton, his words are mostly wonderful, who succinctly quipped that fallacies do not cease to become fallacies just because they become fashions. Fallacies do not cease to become fallacies just because they become fashions. Just because it's fashionable to think fallaciously does not make thinking any less fallacious. Now, one of these fallacies that's become all too commonplace in the modern world is this fallacy that has the Latin name ad novitum. Ad novitum. Ad novitum is a very simple fallacy to understand. And it's just as easy to fall prey to, to fall victim to. And the fallacy of ad novitum is to believe that what is new is true. Whatever is new is true. It's to believe that because something is newer, it's necessarily better than what came before it. Now, it's easy to be lulled into that sort of thinking, right? It's easy to be lulled into the fallacious fallacy of ad novitum. Because there are a myriad of instances where indeed the new is better than the old. Right? I have no doubts That the iPhone, whatever iteration they're up to these days, is certainly better than my iPhone 7. I don't know what number they're on now, but it's got to be better. Each generation seems to be better. The televisions of today are far, far superior to the televisions I grew up with. And even the one that I might have bought three or four years ago, you're like, wow, that's a great improvement. But to assume that something is better simply because it is new, it's to fall victim to the fallacy of ad novitum. And in reality, many times, that which is old is better than that which is new. Not always, but many times that is the case. This is the reason that we still have classics departments that read Homer and Shakespeare. There's great value to studying things that have withstood the test of time. Our text this morning, Psalm 90, is a perfect example of ancient wisdom. That not only has withstood the test of time, but it far surpasses 
in both beauty and grandeur, much of the newer poetry that grapples with the same issues we find here in Psalm 90. This poem, Psalm 90, grapples with those issues of the fleeting nature of human existence. The wispy, airy, ephemeral blip that sort of make up our time inhabiting this spinning rock that's violently flying through space. Lots of modern poetry that talks about those ideas. Very few that do it as well as Psalm 90. Psalm 90, it's a prayer of Moses, making it an ancient, ancient psalm. And one of the oldest poems in the history of the world. Now, it's not the oldest poem. The oldest poem, as you may be familiar with, that comes from Adam in Genesis chapter 2. When God is officiating the first ever marriage ceremony. And Adam sees his bride for the first time. And he bursts forth in poetry. At last. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. Adam's the first poet. So you see, poetry is something that's built into the very fabric of manhood. This is Adam pre-fall. And Adam pre-fall is a poet. To be a man, to be a true man, is to be a lover of poetry. And if you don't love poetry as a man or a woman, I would argue that there's something misshapen, something off. After all, Shakespeare says in The Merchant of Venice, he's got one of these beautiful lines in there where he says, The man that is not moved by the concords of sweet sounds, that has no poetry within himself, that man is fit for stratagems and spoils and treason. His soul is dark as night. It is dark as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. If you don't love poetry, you meet somebody that says, Nah, I don't really like music. Don't like poetry. Shakespeare says, don't trust that person. After all, man was made to be a poet. There's nothing more manly than poetry. At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's the first poem. This is not that, Psalm 90, but it's one of the oldest poems that we have. And for that reason, and that reason alone, even if this psalm were not the inspired word of God, it would be worthy of our time. It would be worthy of us picking it up to study it as one of the ancient poems of the world. I know that it's my natural habit when I pick up the Psalms, when I'm reading the Psalms, to put myself right back where we were last week when we studied Psalm 51. I naturally put myself into the world of David. I put myself into the world of Israel's monarchy, into the world of Solomon and Saul. I naturally put myself into the world of Bathsheba and Uriah. I naturally drift into that world where the Assyrian demolition of Israel is right out there on the horizon. And sort of the Babylonian captivity of Judah, that that's marching closer and closer to the foreground. That's where my mind drifts. But that's not the original context of this song. Here we find ourselves in the world of Moses. We are in the world right after the Israelites have been saved by the mighty hand of God from their 430 years of enslavement in Egypt. We are in the world here when we read this psalm of wandering. We are in the world of Israel's sort of remarkable collective amnesia. Israel quickly forgetting, ever so quickly forgetting, how God redeemed them by his mighty works. They quickly began to grumble. 
they quickly began to complain. Quickly forgot that although they may not yet inhabit Canaan, that God had been their dwelling place in all generations. They forgot quick. And with our sights situated properly in that situation, Israel, right after coming out of Egypt, Israel in their wandering, with our sights situated properly. Let's examine the text this morning under two headings. Two headings. The situation in verses 1 through 11, and the solution in 12 through 17. So we have the situation, verses 1 through 11, and the solution in verses 12 through 17. So first, the situation. In this psalm, our author Moses, he's dealing with the brevity of life. He is elucidating sort of the harshness of the human condition. The rugged, arduous, and just fleeting nature of our lives. More particularly, the lives of the Israelites that he is leading. Those lives were fleeting, quick, here one moment, gone the next. You return man to dust, he writes. From dust they were made, and to dust they shall return. Just as quickly as the Spirit of God breathed life into the dirt and formed man, just as quickly as that happened, the sanctions of sin send man spiraling back into insignificance, into sequestration. Moses continues, you sweep them away as with a flood, swept away as if in a flood. And in that flood, he says, they're carried downstream and they fight against the current. And fighting against the current, if you got enough vigor, the strong may swim against that current for 70, maybe even 80 years, as the psalmist says in verse 10. But nature will take no prisoners. And all of us are dragged through those waters. Picture that image there, right? You are getting sucked down the river, dragged through the waters. And on each side of you, you have the banks of the river. And you can kind of see yourself passing by with on the banks, you have your dreams, your aspirations, your hope, your children, all of them just passing by as that tributary brings you to your inevitable death. That's the picture Moses is giving us. The psalmist goes on. He says, their life is like a dream. Here one moment, gone the next. Dreams, after all, they can't be held onto, can they? They can't be managed. And many times, like this life that Moses is describing, dreams make very little sense. They're confusing. They're disorienting. Wait, how did that person get here? They don't even know each other. Absolutely unrelenting in his desire to drive home the frailty of life. The poet adds even more. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, fades and withers. Some grass, it springs up vibrant, green, strong for a moment. In its youth, that is. But it quickly fades. It dries up and it's blown away. And then that grass is just replaced by new grass that a new homeowner has to go out and cut on a Saturday morning. Never once while you're mowing that grass, thinking of the homeowners that had to cut the grass before you. People long gone, 
people as frail and wispy as the grass that you are now cutting. This is the grim but honest assessment of man's condition. Moses here, because of his forthright, honest appraisal, he is a great example for leaders, and particularly leaders of the church. That is to say something like this. Ministers need to be honest, and they need to be honest in assessing the situation of their congregants. The pulpit is not a place for soft-pedaling pacifists. The ministry, it's not some sort of mechanism for ameliorating the sadness of the world by telling them, you know what, guys? Everything's okay. This hallowed position right here ought not to be hollowed out by men whose preaching consists of tips and life hacks to tell their congregants how to live their best life, how to help their congregants be true to themselves and help the overwhelming good that is in them sort of overcome any troubling areas, any areas of deficiencies or weaknesses that they might have. Notice we must always call these things deficiencies and weaknesses. Never sin. Never sin. That word's too archaic. It's too blunt. That's an unsophisticated word, sin. Or at least we're told that. But to tell dying men and women that they are fine and need no medicine... That is medicinal malpractice. That is an ecclesiastical miscarriage of duty. To tell congregants that they themselves are good and have no need to worry, that is to utterly fail as a leader of the church. It is to steal from, it is to spoil the treasury of Christ's grace. Not to mention, a failure to make people aware of their condition, the fleeting nature of their lives, especially in light of their having sinned and offended God, to fail to do that, that is to flat out lie. And Moses, as a good leader, as a good teacher, he's no liar. So Moses, he is going to fittingly juxtapose two different conditions. He's going to juxtapose the ephemeral condition of man with the eternality of God. The steadfastness of God. He writes, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses wants to highlight the gulf between God and man. You know, mountains are timeless compared to man. And yet mountains, they're still bound by time. There, after all, was a time when they were not. You see, the grass withers and the flower fade. The mountains were spoken into existence by the word. And the word was with God because the word was God. And although the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. The mountains were not at one time. And there will be a time when they are no longer. Chesterton to quote him again, in his masterpiece, what I believe to be his greatest work, The Everlasting Man, he speaks of these four major epochs, these four huge big bangs, so to speak, in the course of history. Those, the movement from nothing to something. It's a big movement. Somehow we have nothing and then we have something. And then we move from something 
to life. And then from life to man. And then from man to Christian. He says those are all four big bangs that you have to deal with right there. From nothing to something. From something to life. From life to man. And then from man to Christian. Lewis adds that maybe the greatest transition is one that Chesterton leaves out. The fifth. That being from Christian to glorified. But however you number those epochs. However you number those periods, those momentous transitions, before all of them, God was. And God, since he is eternal, Moses can say about him, as he does in verse 1, that he can be and continue forever to be our dwelling place. The eternal God is the one safe home. He's the one safe harbor. For his time-enslaved children. So one can see then. That this most ancient of poems. One of the most ancient of poems. This most ancient of psalms. It's shot through with eschatology. That is, it is shot through with things concerning the last things. The final things. Because children of God. Are being drawn into a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. You're being pulled into a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. God's people are being drawn into love that is not constrained by time. Not constrained by time in the least. Think about that. When we talk about God being outside of time, it's something we can't even begin to wrap our brains around. A.W. Tozer tries, the great American pastor, He says this, the mind, it looks backwards in time until the dim past vanishes, then turns and looks into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion. And God is at both points, unaffected by either. Looks back into the past, looks into the future. God's at both points, unaffected by either. There's one thing that Moses is obsessing over in this psalm. It's the idea of time. He hits on the concept of days, years, or time 20 different times in these 17 verses. And all of this time infatuation, it's set against the backdrop of a God who's outside of time. A God who before time was existing in an eternal, perfect community. Of mutually indwelling, interpenetrating, perichoritic love. And in his love, God is not cold and remote. But in his love, his eternal ontological community of love, he was making a plan. That's what he was doing. And he was making a plan to bring us into his love. That's beautiful to think about, is it not? We have a personal God, a tri-personal God, who from all eternity has been making a plan, a personal plan to draw you into the love that is his tri-personal life. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in Christ 
before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In pure love, the eternal son now incarnate, he prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays that the eternal timeless plan of God would finally be set into motion. He prays that the plan that he had covenanted to, right, Christ covenant, the eternal son covenant in the Godhead with the father from all eternity. And then Jesus in John 17 prays, now, father, let the plan come into action. And he prays these words. I pray for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, this God, this triune God, the God who has been Moses's and Israel's dwelling place for all generations, he's got a plan. And it's a well-crafted and beautiful plan. A plan to bring you into his love. And it is a plan that is fully unhindered by a deadline. Because the plan was enacted. It was conceived. It was birthed. It was covenanted to from all eternity. So there's no deadline. And because of this, there is a beauty to it. That our time-restrained plans do not have any access to. There is a tranquility and a peacefulness to God's plan that our earthbound, time-bound plans cannot even begin to comprehend. There's a little bit of dread that hangs over all of our plans because our plans are bound by time. If we go there, we have to do X, Y, and Z, but we won't have time for that. Or if we spend this amount of time doing this, we won't be able to do that. All of our plans have time corrupting them. God's plan has been hatched outside of time for all eternity for you and I to be drawn into his interpenetrating love. It's a plan that by mercy we are graciously made parts of. So Moses' insistence on our understanding the transitory nature of our own existence, it's not there to sort of bemoan our position. It's not there for us to be grumbling, oh man, we're bound by time but is to beseech God for mercy. God whose plans are far greater than our plans. It's only in light of verse 1 and 2 and God's eternality that our impermanence, our blip of a life, can be properly understood. You see, if we keep our eyes focused below, then we can sort of fall into the habit of thinking that we got lots of time. We have lots of tricks that we can play on ourselves to make us think we have more time than we do. Seems like every day when I go to check my mail, Yahoo News, I'm one of the four or five people left still using Yahoo. When I go to check my mail, Yahoo once a week at least, almost every day it feels like, they'll run some sort of headline story about the oldest man or the oldest woman alive. We see these stories all the time. Right? They pop up in your news feed. That's because we like to read these stories. People click on stories about the oldest man alive. 
Because as long as sort of that mental equation we do, oh, 114, 35, 114, 79, 79 years left. As long as that mental equation leaves us with a large enough sum, then we don't really have to number our days. Right? We're really good at deceiving ourselves, tricking ourselves, keeping ourselves from numbering our days. Right? I'm convinced that it's the number one factor behind diet culture, especially sort of these fly-by-night diet fads. Oh, if I stay away from those foods, those are the real killers. And if I avoid those foods, I won't have to number my days, at least not for a long time. Much, much further down the road, I'll start numbering my days. But you know what sin is? Sin is not numbering your days. That's what sin is. It's not realizing you're going to give an account for what you've done. Not numbering our days shows more than anything. It shows a profound lack of faith. If we truly had faith, if we believed truly that God was real, he sees all, he knows all, and that we're actually going to give an account, would we act the way that we do? So all sin at its root, at some level, it's a lack of faith. And that's scary stuff. Because faith is the very conduit by which we receive grace, upon which our eternal hope rests. And sin is a lack of faith. So in our psalm, Moses starts with God and his eternality. And then he moves to man. Right? Well, that's the only proper way to conduct any sort of anthropological work. Got to start with God and then move to man. And when you do that mental calculus, all right, God's eternality minus my wispy existence, that equals hey, I better get my heart in check. I better start setting my sights on things eternal. That's how that equation works out. Moses, he wants our eyes fixed on eternity, on our eschatological hope. He wants our eyes fixed on our eschatological life because that's where God wants us. That's where God wants our focus. He doesn't want our focus solely on things below. After all, there was a famous man who once said these words, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's quite clear that this ancient, ancient psalm, this ancient poem, it's an eschatological poem. And this isn't me theologizing about this psalm. It's not me imposing some new categories back into this ancient poem of antiquity. We know it's not a conjecture that this psalm is an eschatological psalm because we hear these exact words in 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, which is clearly a chapter on eschatology, nobody doubts that. In that chapter, Peter quotes Psalm 90 in the middle of his eschatological apologetic. Peter uses Psalm 90 to drive home his eschatological point saying this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
So this is where we stand. We stand on the razor-thin edge of a cliff with a precipitous drop if ever there was one. Man is finite. We don't number our days. We lack perspective. We lack faith. And we are being swept towards death as if caught up in a flood. A flood that is pushing us downstream towards our death. And if that news isn't bad enough, Moses tells us that's what's what's waiting for us. Once that river carries us to our inevitable death, he tells us what's waiting for us is a God and a God who is angry at us. Look at verse 7 and 8 of our text. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So we fail. Our lives are cut short. We are cut off by God's righteous, just anger because our sins are offered up before him. Lift up our hearts, we say. No, we lift up our sins. Brought right to the presence of God. Think of that. Our finite sins are not finite because they sit before the one who is infinite. That's a horrifying picture. That's maybe the most horrifying biblical truth. Right? That your sins are set before an infinite God. For you and I, our sins are quickly forgotten as you move down the stream of life. But before God, time doesn't move. Before him sits not a moving river, but a stagnant sea of perpetual now. And your secret sins, which have moved into the dark recesses of your memory, they've faded into non-existence for you. Those sins are set in the light of God's holy presence. Those sins are fully illuminated. And the radiance of God's presence, they accentuate And make visible all the perverse and misshapen nooks and crannies of our shortcomings. Of our mangled desires. Our contorted lives. That's the dire position we are in. And we are in much, much need of a solution. Which brings us to our second point. The solution. The solution comes, if you would look, starting in verse 12. Verse 12 reads... So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Numbering our days brings wisdom because those who fear the Lord number their days. And we know that the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. Numbering our days, it sort of sets our horizon in the proper place so that we might live lives that are properly oriented. If you don't have your eyes fixed on the right point, it's impossible to run the race straight, to attain the goal, to achieve the prize, any of those athletic metaphors that Paul likes to use. God needs to teach us that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And we should notice by reading Psalm 90, what does that heart of wisdom immediately do? Notice what the man who numbering his days Having then gained wisdom, what is his very first move? Wisdom calls for us to cry for the return to the presence of God. Look at verse 13. It it reads, Return, O Lord, how long? 
Have pity on your servants. You see, those that number their days, they quickly realize that this place that we are in right now, this is the wilderness. This is not Canaan. Right? We long for Mount Zion, for the heavenly Jerusalem, in all of its fullness. Because having numbered our days, we realize quickly we're not made for this place. We're made for eternity. But I want to be clear here. We should notice Moses is no escapist. This psalm doesn't end with Moses saying something like this. Well, I was made for eternity. So until Christ comes again, I'll do nothing but stare into the clouds and wait for his return. That's not what he says. Although man was made for eternity, did not God create a temporal world and declare that it is good? Did not God grant man with skills and abilities, with free will? Did not God impress his very image upon this strange creature that we call man and then entrust us with work to do? He certainly did. So notice how Moses ends this psalm. Read, if you would, with me, verse 16 and 17. He says, let your work be shown to your servants. Let your work, you got stuff for us to do. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses, having fully taken into account man's condition, looking at his finitude, his finitude which keeps him, it precludes him from establishing any work that will last on his own. He knows that the work that he does on his own, it's not going to last. So what does he do? Oh, I'm not going to do any work then. No, he cries out to the Lord. He cries out to God and he says, Lord, let your work be shown to your servants. Lord, let your work be shown to us. Let your favor be upon us so that my labor is not in vain. So that my labor has meaning. So that my life has purpose. You see, mankind was made to work. And even more so, they were made to work not in a menial, slave-like way. But we were made to work with a purpose. We were made to work towards an end or towards a goal. You guys have probably no doubt heard the stories from Dostoevsky that he tells about his times in the Russian and the Soviet death camps. Particularly, I'm thinking about his work, The House of the Dead. And in that novel, Dostoevsky recounts the situation of those in the Soviet death camps. And all of these prisoners, they were given work to do. Some of the prisoners, they were forced to build railroads for the Soviets. Railroads that by by all accounts, were going to be used for nefarious purposes, for evil ends. But there was at least a dignity to the work. The work had a purpose. The work had an end. Hey, build the railroad from point A to point B. They had work to do. But there were others, Dostoevsky tells us, in those death camps that were giving meaningless work. They were told to take rocks from one pile of the, of, of the death camp and move them to the other pile. And then the next day, they would take those rocks and move them back to the original pile, day after day. 
Dostoevsky tells us that those people doing that work, that they committed suicide at an alarming rate. Their labor was completely devoid of meaning. And man cannot live without meaning. We are creatures that have built into the very psychological fabric of our being a need for our labor to have some meaning, some permanence. But because we are finite, only those things done in the service of the infinite one will pass through the final purgation, the final fire. So this psalm, it concludes with a very joyful note. Yes, life is short. Yes, it is fleeting. But God is not. And you are his. He is the God in whom you live, in whom you move, in whom you have your very being. You are right now united to Christ. As it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. Now that that line right there, you're united to Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. That's not sort of a throwaway verse from Galatians chapter 2. It might be the most prevalent theme in all of Scripture. It's certainly the most prevalent theme in the entire New Testament. The theme that you are united to Christ. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, or one that's akin to it, 170 times in the New Testament. You are united to Christ. You're united to Christ. You're united 170 times in the New Testament. That is some reassuring stuff right there. You are in Christ right now. The eternal one. The God of God, the light of light, the very God of very God. And because of that, because of your union, your real spiritual union to Christ, those things that you do right now to magnify the fire, Father, those things that you do, your works of mercy, your works of charity, your labors of faith, hope, and love, your feeding the hungry, hugging the broken, your feasting with the saints, those works will be established by the mighty hand of God. So, what should we do? We lift up our voice to praise Him because the songs that you sing here, when you sing, those songs will be established. Just like your sins are set before a God who has a perpetual now before him, your songs of praise are lifted before him. They will be established. When you pray, your prayers are cemented by the bonds of world-creating love. So blessed are you when you mourn for the martyrs, because your pleas, they have more permanence than the mountains. Blessed are those who have counted their days, And having counted their days, have developed a meek spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who pursue peace and tranquility. For they will be established beside streams of living water. They will be established beside waters that no longer sweep us away like a flood. But you will be established by waters that join in in a cosmic cacophony of firmly established praise. And they will be praising the one who is the God of Abraham. They'll be praising the one who is the God of Isaac and Jacob. All of the universe will praise the God of the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs. All of the universe will praise the God of your church fathers 
and your biological fathers. All of the universe will join in the praise of your children, the God of your children, and the God of your children's children. All creation will join in the established praise of the one who from everlasting to everlasting is God. And that is very good news. Amen. Amen.